0: On today's episode, we have two Coen Brothers classics, starting with Fargo from 1996, followed by No Country for Old Men from 2007. Alright, everyone. Welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, we've got a couple of Coen Brothers movies, and I'm really excited to talk about them. But first, I did want to talk about what I value in terms of ratings and awards and things like that. I know I've probably talked about this before, but it just merits repeating. So. I usually go with internet ratings, I go with Letterboxd, IMDB, Rotten Tomatoes, things like that. All of those sites, they're user-based ratings and there's no power of the critics or anything like that or giant committees that are getting together to rate a movie. It's just, I feel like it's a lot better to go that route and actually see what they have to say about these types of movies. I think that it's a little more reliable. Now, obviously, you can get it where it's been piled on, where a bunch of people give one movie that's pretty bad a bad rating, and it becomes seemingly, like, one of the worst movies of all time. And then, on the opposite end, obviously, you can get people piling on and saying something is really good, and in reality, that movie is nothing special. And it's just, it's very unpleasant the way you can't really rely on anything. It's almost like it'd be nice if you had a person that you could identify with that was a user on those sites and just see what they rated movies and hope that you can trust them. But even then, you know that there'd be times where you didn't agree on things. And that takes me to the award shows. I don't really like any award show I don't think that any of them are particularly reliable as far as an indicator of what quality a movie will have. They're like, well, we really liked this movie because it had a lot of social commentaries in it, and it was very important to us for this certain era or whatever, and it really doesn't need to be like that. I mean, it's great to have those things in movies and actually talk about something that's meaningful, but in reality... It's not enough to make a movie. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I hate the movie Crash, which came out in the early 2000s, and it just was all about race and people being racist and things like that. It tried to really have an impactful message, but it really fell flat for me. But it ultimately won Best Picture at the Oscars. And let me tell you, I just don't think that that should have ever happened. I think it's probably for my money, one of the worst movies to ever win Best Picture. And it didn't even really come close. When I watched it, I didn't think, oh yeah, they're going to give this one Best Picture, but it's not that good. It was like, I really didn't think that they could possibly think that it was good enough to give a Best Picture at all. So that's kind of where I'm at with different awards. It's like there are too many influences and people let their opinions be kind of pushed in a certain direction based on elements in a story that are, not truly reflected well in the plot. I mean, they just don't... People just kind of let their opinions be influenced by the different things that happen in movies that get talked about in the movies, but they're not actually integral to the plot. Or even worse, they are integral to the plot, but they're so ham-fisted that it just doesn't even make any sense. But yeah, that was all I really wanted to talk about. I just wanted to explain why I rarely talk about awards and things like that. I just don't think that they're that important. I think user ratings on IMDb, Letterboxd, Rotten Tomatoes, those are the more important things out there. So I guess I'll just dive right into my first movie, Fargo, released on March 8th, 1996, Written, directed, and produced by the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan. Check out the inaugural episode of the series Trading Ratings, which is a collection of spotlight episodes that I have on my main feed. And the first episode ever, we covered the Coen brothers movies. So it's a very cool concept that my brother-in-law came up with to just go back and forth rating movies that share a common theme or actor or director or whatever. Some of the movies that the Coen brothers have done are Blood Simple, which is the first movie they ever really did, and it just, to me, was not that good. It was very slow, and it's just like, I didn't really get into it very well. I couldn't really get behind it. I just got really bored, and I just can't really recommend that one. They did Raising Arizona with Nicolas Cage, and that one's like a comedy, and it's kind of a ridiculous story. But it's very enjoyable. I mean, I'm not a big Nicolas Cage fan, but I do enjoy that movie. I just don't rewatch it very often. They did Miller's Crossing with Gabriel Byrne, and that one is very solid. I re-watched it recently, and I really loved it. I honestly really enjoyed it, and it had a lot of cool elements to it that I had forgotten since my first viewing of the movie. And they also did a movie called Barton Fink with John Turturro. And I really like him. He's really great. He's a really talented actor. He's usually more of a character actor. He's not usually like a lead. This was all about having writer's block and things like that. Like he was a writer and he couldn't think of what to write and things like that. And it just showed all of his distractions and it gets kind of surreal in a lot of spots. And it's very interesting to watch. I don't really necessarily think it's one that I would rewatch over and over again, but it's definitely worth checking out at least one time. For the score, we have composer Carter Burwell, and he did a ton of Coen Brothers movies, honestly, a shit ton of them. He did Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox, which I have gathered that I do not need to see ever in this lifetime. I just heard it was very mediocre from some of the people that I follow on Instagram. I follow all of these Instagram pages that cover movies and talk about Random movies that they really like or don't like, and they just review them, and it's pretty interesting. He did Being John Malkovich, which is a solid movie. I honestly don't remember much of it at all. I remember it being pretty weird, but that's about it. And he did Adaptation, which is another one that I don't remember well at all, but I kind of want to rewatch it, but I think it has Nicolas Cage in it. Like, I think he's the lead, and that's the only thing that's, like, dragging me down, not wanting to watch it. For the cast, we have Frances McDormand, and she plays Marge Gunderson, She's in a bunch of Coen Brothers movies. She's actually married to Joel Coen. She was in Almost Famous, and that one was solid. I think that's, is it Cameron Crowe? I can't remember. Anyway, that movie was pretty solid. I think it was probably a little overrated, frankly, but it was pretty good. She was in Moonrise Kingdom, which is a Wes Anderson movie with a huge ensemble cast, as is a trademark of his movies. And I really like that one. that's definitely my most favorite of all of his movies. I really just like that one a lot. I don't know what it is about it, honestly. And she was also in Nomad Land, which she it's basically about this like drifter. she's she plays a drifter and she is just, I don't know. I mean, it was fucking painfully boring to me. I didn't find it to be that interesting. I thought that the movie kind of lacked a lot on the the whole delivering on the plot and all that stuff. It just didn't really come off satisfying to me, and that's really important in a movie. Then we have William H. Macy, who plays Jerry Lundegaard. He was in Mr. Holland's Opus, previously covered on this podcast. He was in Boogie Nights, and I really like that movie. It's P.T. Anderson. It's got Mark Wahlberg. It's got a lot of up-and-coming stars that weren't famous really before that movie came out. And it's just really fucking good. I don't know what it is about it that makes that movie so good. The soundtrack is fucking amazing, honestly. He was also in Magnolia, and I believe Tom Cruise is in that one. It's another P.T. Anderson movie, and I just can't bring myself to watch it for some reason. I'm just not that interested in watching a Tom Cruise movie, if I'm being completely honest. And then last but not least, he was in Shameless, which is a TV show that is on Showtime And that one's a pretty solid show. I haven't watched the more recent seasons of it, but it's a really cool show. It's about this just scumbag family, basically. They have this reputation. There's a bunch of kids. William H. Macy plays the dad. It's just really funny at times, and it's very serious at times. I really like it a lot. Then we have Steve Buscemi, who plays Carl Showalter, He was in Reservoir Dogs, and that one is a great Quentin Tarantino movie. It was his first big movie. I mean, I really love it. I think it's fucking great. He's got this cool scene in it where he talks about not tipping waitresses because he doesn't think that tipping by default should be a thing and that it's just bullshit. And it's a really fucking great exchange of dialogue. He was in Airheads with Adam Sandler and Brendan Fraser, and that one's actually a pretty funny movie. It's kind of ridiculous, but it's very funny. They're just a bunch of guys in a rock band, and they want to get their demo tape heard or whatever, so they go to this radio station and basically like take it over, and it's pretty entertaining. He's had a bunch of bit parts in other Adam Sandler movies. He's just been in a lot of them, and he always plays these small roles that it's like, oh, wow, that's Steve Buscemi. What's he doing here? And he always plays these scumbags or these guys that are just super weird, and it's just very funny usually. I haven't enjoyed a lot of Adam Sandler movies as of late but I've really enjoyed the earlier ones in his career. I thought they were great. And then last but not least, he was in Con Air. He plays this prisoner who is supposed to be a deranged lunatic and essentially does nothing but just make you think he's going to kill a little girl and then he doesn't. I don't know. I mean, Con Air is great to watch to make fun of. It's pretty over the top. It's just very action-packed, but it's kind of stupid at the same time in a lot of places. Then we have Peter Stormare, who plays Yair Grimsrud. Kristen Rudrud plays Gene Lundegaard. Harv Presnell plays Wade Gustafson. For casting notes, the Cohen brothers initially considered William H. Macy for a smaller role, but they were so impressed by his reading that they asked him to come back in and read for the role of Jerry. Due to unforeseeable circumstances, Bill Pullman had to turn down the part of Jerry Lundegaard that went to William H. Macy. For the plot synopsis, a police officer in Minnesota investigates a car salesman when his plan falls apart as he plots to stage a kidnapping of his wife to collect the ransom. So this is the pre-movie disclaimer that comes up on screen before the movie actually starts, and it just says, This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. The thing is, the disclaimer is actually apparently complete and utter bullshit, and the story is not even true at all. Like, it might be inspired by real events and things like that, but the overarching narrative of the story is not wholly true at all. All right, guys, let's just dive right into this fucking plot. I'm so excited. So the music in this movie is so fucking well done. It entrances me pretty heavily. We get a lot of it in the opening scene and credits. We start off by watching a car hauling another car on a trailer across a desolate snowscape. The car arrives in Fargo, North Dakota. And Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, is meeting with a couple of questionable criminal characters named Carl and Gier at a small pub. Carl is played by Steve Buscemi, and Gier is played by Peter Stormare. Just to look at them, the two guys look like they're, at best, potentially not good people, especially Gier. He just kind of gives off a vibe. Jerry is flustered when the men tell him he's an hour late, and there was clearly a mix-up with the agreed-upon time from their mutual friend. It's just such an awkward interaction. Jerry just looks so out of his league trying to get involved with these guys, and he's obviously very nervous about the whole thing. They argue about the terms of their deal, but Carl doesn't want to debate about when they'll get their ransom money for kidnapping Jerry's wife. Carl's doing most of the talking, and Gear is there for support as they kind of gang up on Jerry. Jerry goes on to explain that his father-in-law will pay the ransom because he's well off. Jerry doesn't have the money to give to them just yet. And that would be a total rookie move if he had the money and actually gave it all to them before they did anything. I mean, I could understand giving some amount as a show of good faith or something. That would actually be pretty standard, but not all of it. That's just completely ludicrous. They argue a bit more about how the whole thing should be handled, and then the bad guys just give in and go out to look at the car Jerry brought them. It's important to note that a lot of these characters have thick Minnesotan accents that just add a little dash of humor to an otherwise serious story. It seems like a real bad idea to be out and about on the roads today, is the most generic Minnesotan thing I could think of to say just now. It's just, I love the accents guys, I don't know what it is about them, I love to do accents, and if you don't like it, I'm sorry, I apologize, but I'm probably going to keep doing them. Jerry arrives back home to Minneapolis, and his wife, Jean, played by Kristen Rudrud, is there, and so is his father-in-law, Wade, played by Harv Presnell. Fun thing about that, Harv Presnell hadn't made a movie in over 20 years when he was cast as Wade. Wade watches sports on TV and barely acknowledges Jerry. It's pretty clear that Wade loathes the very sight of Jerry, and every interaction they have seems to involve Wade not paying him any respect. They sit down to dinner as a family. They also have a kid named Scotty. When Scotty leaves to go hang out with his friends, Wade comments on what bad things he's probably going to do, and Gene dismisses the concern because Wade is kind of an ornery old man, and when people get to be his age... They always hate the younger generations and everything they do. Jerry's trying to work out a deal with Wade to buy some real estate for $750,000 to put in a parking lot, which seems like a ton of cash to me, but I don't know jack shit about that kind of stuff, so maybe it's a good deal. Wade is very apprehensive about the deal and makes that clear to Jerry, and Wade says he wants to talk to his financial guy about it. When Jerry suggests that the deal will be great for Gene and Scotty... Wade makes it clear that Gene and Scotty will never have to worry because Wade is wealthy enough to take care of them and deliberately doesn't include Jerry in that sentiment. This further solidifies just how much Wade is not a fan of Jerry. Things change over to what the kidnappers Carl and Gere are up to for a moment and they argue about where to eat. Pierre says he wants pancakes, but Carl says they just had pancakes that morning, and he wants to find somewhere to have a steak and a drink and to get laid. These two guys could not be less alike in almost every way. Back with Jerry, he's at his job as a car salesman, arguing with a customer about typical car salesman horse shit. The salesmen always try and throw in these extras to charge for, and honestly good for these people for calling him on his bullshit. Jerry is pretty clearly miserable and gets yelled at a lot. Like in this instance, he led the customers to believe this true coat, which I believe is supposed to be an undercarriage rust-proofer, was optional, but then reveals that they put it on at the factory and he's gonna charge them for it, even though he made it seem like they didn't have to get it or pay for it. Neat tidbit on that, the scene where the couple tries to make a deal with Jerry is based on Ethan Cohen's real-life encounter with a car salesman. He said it's almost a verbatim transcript of my experience. Back with the kidnappers, they're at a motel fucking some hookers. I want to guess what the difference between a motel and a hotel is without looking it up. Is it that the doors to the rooms in motels are on the exterior of the building, and hotels are on the interior connected by hallways? I don't fucking know. And oh no... The answer that Google gave me was so much less interesting than my assumption. It said that motels typically are smaller, have fewer amenities, and are located near motorways. Whereas hotels are larger, they have more amenities, and are located more centrally in cities. Motel is actually just a merging of the words motor and hotel. But my thing is, is I'm pretty sure that I've seen lots of hotels near motorways and not centrally located, so fuck off, Google. Then we jump back to the Lundegaards, and I gotta say, Gene's accent is the most ridiculous in this movie. Their son swears when he gets told he can't go out for hockey because of his grades, and they just have the most ridiculous reaction, like, Hey, watch that language there. Wade tells Jerry he's interested in the land deal and to come see him. Jerry goes and sees Shep Proudfoot, a mechanic at the car dealer where he works. Shep got Jerry in touch with the kidnappers and probably caused the mix-up with what time Jerry and the kidnappers were supposed to meet in Fargo. It just seems like everybody Jerry talks to straight up doesn't want to talk to him and is very cold and they just plain don't like him, but Shep seems to already be especially like that with everybody, not just Jerry. Now that the land deal is potentially going through, Jerry wants to try and back out of the deal with the kidnappers. He asks Shep if he has an alternate number for the kidnappers since he can't seem to get a hold of them, and Shep says he doesn't have one. At one point when Jerry mentions the two kidnappers, Shep also explicitly states that he only knew about and vouched for one of the men he met with. Back with the kidnappers, we're quickly learning that Carl is super chatty, and Gear is most definitely not, to the point that he seemingly deliberately avoids saying any more than he absolutely has to. We keep getting really brief glimpses of the kidnappers on the road on their way to go through with the kidnapping, interspersed with Jerry's runaround around horse shit. Gene is at home, and she sees one of the kidnappers come up on the back porch. He's in a ski mask, and he breaks in by smashing the glass door with a crowbar. Fun little tidbit from my life experiences, Sliding glass doors typically use tempered glass panes, and they would actually be fairly hard to just break if you didn't know how to hit it. I actually used to work maintenance at an apartment complex, and me and my coworkers used to remove old glass doors, and after we put a new one in, we'd take a sledgehammer to the old one to more easily dispose of it, but if you just tried to quick break one, it was very difficult. Anywho, the other kidnapper comes in the front door, It's honestly a pretty fucking scary moment, even with being a little more familiar with these particular bad guys and further knowing that this is a staged kidnapping. Jean makes a mad dash as they try and scoop her up, and she brings a corded phone into another room and closes and locks the door. It's awesome watching as she frantically tries to dial 911 and the kidnappers yank the cord from the other side of the door, pulling the phone out of her hands. Like, what on earth did Jean expect to happen in this moment? They break into the room, and it looks a lot like Jean has escaped through the bathroom window, but Jean was actually hiding in the shower. So sneaky. Guillaume, who dicks around in the medicine cabinet, happened to notice her in there, while Carl was running out to catch her. She gets entangled in the curtain as she runs out of the shower and falls down the stairs and gets knocked unconscious, and we assume they just rounded her up and took her. But the first time I saw this, it seemed plausible that she was going to have died right there. With the way that she went down the stairs, it just looked like she could have honestly died. And that could have been an interesting twist on this kidnapping, with maybe having the kidnappers try and ransom her while concealing that she's dead. But I like what they actually did better with this movie. Back with Jerry, he's talking to Wade and Stan Grossman, who is Wade's financial guy, and he is played by Larry Brandon at Randomburg. Just kidding, it's Larry Brandenburg. He's someone you might have seen before. He's solid in a lot of small roles, but I didn't know him by name. I had to look him up. Turns out, Wade and Stan thought Jerry was bringing the land deal to them, only expecting a finder's fee, believing they would actually carry out the deal themselves in their minds. Jerry was expecting Wade to loan him the money and then Jerry could collect when it paid off and pay Wade back with interest. He wanted to get more money than a finder's fee from the deal. Stan and Wade explain that they are not a bank and they're not going to just lend Jerry $750,000 in hopes that he can pay it back. The deal really goes south and Stan and Wade ask if they can move on the deal independently. We really just see Jerry losing left and right in this story, and nothing seems to go his way. I mean, Jerry should have at least seen if he could still get the finder's fee. It's not clear just how much financial trouble he's in, but it's safe to assume it's a lot. We get this really cool shot over the snow-covered parking lot of Jerry walking to his car. He scrapes his icy windshield in a rage before he goes home, and it's honestly a pretty great scene. He gets to the house, obviously knowing that the kidnapping might have already happened as planned, and clearly it did as he sees the mess the house was left in. They probably didn't plan for this big of a mess, to be fair, but that's about it. I mean, you gotta expect a little bit of a mess. Jerry starts rehearsing a phone call to Wade about Gene having been kidnapped. It's a super nice touch. It feels so realistic to me. I could see actually doing that, kind of getting your mind right and your story straight before trying to tell somebody what happened when you know it's not really as you present it to them. The kidnappers are driving through Brainerd, Minnesota, with Gene wrapped up in the back seat. All of a sudden, they're getting pulled over on this road out in the middle of nowhere. Truthfully, Gier has got to be one of the creepiest looking guys I've ever seen, and Carl is no prize, obviously. He's just kind of funny looking, just in a general kind of way. Carl assumes they're being pulled over because he forgot to put the temporary tabs on the car, and that seems like a very not smart move considering all cops need is an excuse to pull you over, and there are usually already a million of those. Carl tries to handle the cop by giving him a not-so-subtle bribe. He does this by showing him his ID in his wallet, but with multiple visible bills hanging out of it. The officer doesn't like this, not one bit. The officer gets suspicious and starts to look around more, but before he gets very far, Guilherme grabs him and pulls him down into sight of the driver's side window and shoots him dead, and it's very jarring. Carl seems mortified by what happens, but all the same, he goes to clear the body off the road quickly, and they see another car coming from the opposite direction. The car drives by, and everyone inside sees the scene, and they speed off and immediately Geir gets in the driver's seat and goes to chase them down. Neat tidbit there, about 30 minutes into the film, when Geir Grimsrud chases after the eyewitnesses in the car, he says, "javlafita," which in Swedish means fucking cunt. The actor who portrays Geir, Peter Stormare, is actually Swedish. As he approaches the witnesses, they get in a wreck and their car is overturned way off the road in the snow. So Guierre gets out and murders both people before they get too far away. It's honestly such a fucking incredible sequence of events. In a very short span of time, Guierre really proves to be the psychopath that we expect him to be. Then we meet the Gundersons, who are awakened by a call about the shooting. Marge, played by Frances McDormand, is the police chief, and she's pregnant, and this pregnancy is only referenced a couple of times after we meet her. It doesn't really become a big plot point at all. It's not like she goes into labor at the climax of the movie or something. Her husband, Norm, played by John Carroll Lynch, occupies his time by painting pictures of nature, trying to get the paintings made into official U.S. stamps. John Carroll Lynch is such an underrated character actor. I especially liked him in the movie Zodiac. Definitely check that one out if you get a chance. Marge goes to the scene of the shooting in Brainerd where Gere killed those people after getting pulled over. Fellow officer Lou is on the scene and Marge gives her initial assessment of the events that likely unfolded where the people in the car who witnessed the crime were killed. At one point, she's hunched over and says she thinks she's gonna barf. Little trivia there, Frances McDormand wore a pregnancy pillow filled with birdseed to simulate her pregnant belly. She says that she didn't deliberately try to move in a pregnant way, it simply came as a natural response to keeping the extra weight balanced. I was thinking that it had to be blistering cold out everywhere in this movie. It just looks like it, and everyone acts like it. It's very well conveyed. But there's an interesting fact about that. Filming began on January 22nd, 1995, when the region was experiencing its second warmest winter in 100 years. Filming of outdoor scenes had to be moved all over Minnesota, North Dakota, and Canada, and much of the snow was artificial that we see on screen. Then they go check out the dead police officer's cruiser. After looking at the last thing in the police officer's logbook, they realize that the kidnapper's vehicle likely had dealer plates. But before they figure that out, We get this hilarious back and forth between Marge and Lou, where he doesn't figure out that they're dealer plate numbers right away. Marge tells this joke that I absolutely love, and it goes, ''Did you ever hear the one about a guy who could not afford personalized plates, so he went and changed his name to J3L2404?'' Back with Jerry, Wade, and Stan, they're discussing how to handle the kidnapping and how they can get Gene back safe. Wade wants to call the police, but Jerry says they said not to involve the police. They were very specific about that. And that's tough. Like, should you really not involve the police if kidnappers specifically say not to do so? It's kind of a tough call. I mean, you'd have to think that the police could help. But if they tell you not to, it's like, fuck. I mean, they're going to be that much more pissed if things go awry. They talk about how much to give for ransom for a bit. It's pretty clear that no one values Jerry's opinion on anything, even if there are some things they need to believe him about, like what the kidnappers' demands are. Jerry says he's waiting on the kidnappers to call him with instructions. And actually, I'm surprised to see Jerry keep the story going and not get caught in his lies at any point. That seems very inevitable in this movie. Like You just think that they're going to catch him lying about it, but they don't. Then we see the kidnappers arrive at their safe house on the lake. Jean tries to escape, but she's tied up and blindfolded, so she doesn't get far. And Carl cracks up at how stupid she looks, but Gear is completely stone-faced, of course, because Gear is kind of a fucking psychopath. Marge interviews a couple of girls. I think they're the hookers the kidnappers had sex with in the motel. And I've never paid for sex, but I don't think I'd be willing to cough up any cash for these girls just to paint a little picture. Marge's expression while talking to these girls is fucking hilarious. She clearly thinks they're a couple of dingbats, you know? But she's just letting them carry on about everything that happened. We really just get brief glimpses of what's going on with the characters a little bit at a time for much of the movie. Marge gets a call from an old high school friend who saw her on TV talking about the murders in Brainerd. At work, Jerry gets a call from Carl, the kidnapper. Carl tells Jerry about the murders and how they want more money because of all the trouble they've had, and it's like, yeah, it seems like those are all totally Jerry's fault, Carl. Jerry gets another call from a loan company wanting the serial number for the car he stole from the dealership, and they're threatening legal action, especially since Jerry's giving them his famous salesman bullshit runaround. Marge is given the info on all the calls the kidnappers made to the Twin Cities while at the motel. Wade, Jerry, and Stan are trying to make a plan. Wade says he doesn't want Jerry to handle this. He says, with all due respect, I don't want you mucking this up. Jerry immediately says my favorite repeated line of the movie, which is, the heck do you mean? And he just says it like, you know exactly what the fuck they mean. You're just saying it like you're offended that he would suggest that. Marge gets a hotel in Minneapolis and gets ready to talk to Shep Proudfoot at the shop at the car dealership where Jerry works. Carl comes to this parking lot and steals the license plate off a car and has a little run-in with the booth operator because Carl didn't feel like he should have to pay for just getting in and out of the parking lot, but that's usually not a thing. I've heard of it happening there are certain policies at certain parking ramps that allow you to not have to pay for a very short span of time, but it's like, yeah, dude, you're going to have to fucking pay the minimum whatever. Marge is grilling Shep. She tells him about the calls she wants to know about. She points out that his story doesn't make sense and it's a violation of his parole to associate with criminals. Marge then goes and talks to Jerry and wants to know about the missing vehicle. She then leaves and Jerry tries calling Shep, but he can't find him because it seems like the threat of police action on Shep was just a little too much for him. Marge and an old friend who called her meet at a restaurant. Marge is uneasy with this guy's weird way of reaching out, but she goes along with it. His energy is very unsettling, he's just a little bit creepy. Okay, a lot of bit creepy. They have a very uncomfortable conversation, and we find out this guy's wife died, and he's still very broken up about it. Marge is visibly uneasy the whole time, but is trying to be nice about everything. He keeps telling Marge that she's such a super lady. The guy tries to make a move to sit on Marge's side of the booth with her, but she shuts him down and insists that he move back to his original seat. It's just such an awkward little lunch date that they have. This whole sequence just adds a little humor to the movie and seemingly has no bearing on anything else at all. Fun fact, the Coen brothers wrote the scene at the restaurant with Mike to develop Marge's character outside of the case or her marriage. But it actually might have been cool if she learned something from Mike that she wouldn't have otherwise learned if she hadn't met with him, just to further the plot of the movie. We later find out this guy Mike was not married to the woman he talked about, but that he was obsessed with her, Marge's friend tells her all about it. We then see Shep come and beat the shit out of Carl for causing him problems. He straight up chokes Carl with his belt. He's really going full on fucking rage in this moment. Carl rushes to tell Jerry about hurrying up and making the exchange of the money and getting everything done. Wade listens to the call and goes to beat Jerry to the punch, and this is clearly not something Jerry is on board with, and he knows Carl won't care for it either. Wade has a gun and has the intention of probably killing Carl if he has to. Carl is fed up that they didn't stick to his instructions when he sees Wade, who is some guy he doesn't know at all, and promptly shoots Wade dead in the empty parking lot where they meet. Carl takes a shot in the neck, but he survives. He has to leave while holding his hand to his neck and bleeding all over the place, and basically he just yells at the person at the booth to let him go. Jerry arrives shortly thereafter and finds Wade dead on the ground and presumably goes to hide his body. An officer comes and takes a statement from some weird old guy, and this dude is a fucking trip. The old guy says he was tending bar somewhere, and he had a run-in with someone who was seemingly taking credit for the murders in Brainerd, and was speaking very threateningly, but also mentioned that he was going crazy up at the lake multiple times. This establishes a likely location for the kidnapper's hideout for the police. It also establishes that it must have been Carl that had the run-in with the bartender, because it's very Carl to act like that and shoot off at the mouth about things that he shouldn't talk about, and it's just decidedly not a gear thing to do in any way. Carl tries to bury some of the ransom money for himself near the side of the road somewhere, Marge comes back to see Jerry, but he tries to get her to go away, and the stress is all over Jerry's face at this point. Marge presses him about the missing vehicle. She wants to know about their inventory process, and Jerry insists that it's not the dealership's car, but it obviously is. Then, when Marge asks to speak with Wade, who owns the dealership, Jerry huffs and puffs and says he'll do a lot count right then and there. He leaves and then goes and flees the interview in his car, and Marge sees him leave. Carl arrives at the safe house on the lake to find out that Gere has killed Gene for whatever reason. They argue about how they're dividing their take from the kidnapping. Basically, Carl's point of contention is that with all he's been through with this kidnapping, he deserves to just have the car, but Gier says that Carl needs to pay him for half of the car, and that would be basically splitting it down the middle. As Carl leaves, Gier cuts him down with an axe because Carl just decided he was going to take the car anyway, and that was never really agreed to. Gier didn't realize that on top of this, Carl stole a lot of the money and stashed it on the side of the road, and we never find out what happened to that extra money Carl hid. Marge is driving around the lake trying to find the safe house, and she sees the missing vehicle. She excitedly calls for backup and walks up to the house, You can hear some kind of machinery running, but you don't initially know what it is for sure. It seems like it might be a saw or something. She walks out to the back of the house and sees Gier putting something into a wood chipper. Blood is coming out the other side of the wood chipper opposite him. Marge gets closer and sees Gier putting body parts in the wood chipper, and she identifies herself, and he tries to run, but she shoots him in the leg some way across the frozen lake, which immobilizes him, and she arrests him. Fun fact, the wood chipper used in the movie is now on display at the Fargo-Moorhead Visitors Center. With Guerre in the back of the cruiser, Marge briefly runs through what all happened. She points out that it was all for a little money, and she just can't believe it. Some other officers come to a motel to get Jerry, and he tries to escape out the bathroom window, but ultimately doesn't even make it outside. Jerry's an emotional wreck as they catch him and arrest him, and realistically, it makes sense that he's not in a good headspace. It's true, all of the bad guys in this movie were motivated by money, which is frequently the case in crime, but it led to so much death, needless death. Marge comes home, and Norm announces that he got his Mallard painting on the three-cent stamp. Roll credits. Okay, so praise for this movie. I love the cinematography. It is beautifully shot. I can't look away from it once I start watching it. It's just captivating. The writing of the story, it's very simplistic in a sense, but it's also pretty complex, honestly. They do a really good job with the story that they have and really making it work and be compelling the performances across the board in this movie are great nobody in this movie seems like they're phoning it in or anything i really like every performance the accents are obviously a favorite of mine as i mentioned i really love the accents i wish we could get more movies like this where they had goofy accents but they don't make many of them for criticism I want more, but I don't know if I want it enough to watch the TV show that came out in the last few years. I just don't know that I'm that into it. For trivia, the actors used a book called How to Talk Minnesotan to help with their accents, you know. Gear Grimsrud, played by Peter Stormare, has 18 lines of dialogue in the entire movie and never says more than a complete sentence at a time. By comparison, Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, has over 150 lines of dialogue. Even though the movie takes place mostly in Brainerd, Minnesota, the Coen brothers decided to call the movie Fargo, which is in North Dakota, just because they liked the sound of it for a title better than Brainerd, which was quote-unquote, not cool enough, Fargo is where Jerry Lundegaard meets the two men he hires to kidnap his wife. The snowplow that drives past the motel at the end of the film was not part of the script. Signs in the area warned motorists not to drive through due to filming, but a state employee ignored the signs. William H. Macy stated in an interview that despite evidence to the contrary, he did hardly any ad-libbing at all. Most of his character's stuttering mannerisms were written in the script exactly the way he does them in the film. William H. Macy was doodling between takes, and the Cohen brothers decided to use it for a scene. Three weeks into shooting, Joel Cohen and Ethan Cohen revealed to their cast and crew that this was not in fact based on a true story. None of the movie scenes, either interior or exterior, were actually filmed in Fargo. The bar exterior shown at the beginning of the movie is located in northeast Minneapolis. The trademark Minnesotan, yeah, appears 179 times in the script. Fargo was chosen for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2006. Okay, so on to info and ratings. Runtime, 98 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, $7 million. Opening weekend, 730.2 thousand. Worldwide gross, 60.6 million. IMDb rating, 8.1. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 94%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 93%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. And a little tidbit Siskel and Ebert gave the film two thumbs up and said it was one of the best films they had ever seen. Okay, so moving on to No Country for Old Men. Released on November 9th, 2007. Written, directed, and produced by the Coen brothers. They also made The Big Lebowski, which is a very solid comedy. I really love that movie. John Goodman is fucking priceless in it. They did Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which is a solid one, too. It's a little more musical than most of their movies, but I really like it. And they also did Burn After Reading, which is a great comedy, too. I really like it. It's it's like a satire of spy thrillers, and it's really fun. It's a great time. Obviously, check it out if you haven't already. This is based on the book No Country for Old Men by Cormac McCarthy, also produced by Scott Rudin, who has been fucking producer on a ton of movies. He did The Truman Show, which I never really got the hype behind, but it was a very popular movie. He did The Royal Tenenbaums, which is a Wes Anderson movie, and it's got a huge ensemble cast, as always, with those movies. And I really like that one. It's not as good as Moonrise Kingdom, but it's fucking great. He did Revolutionary Road with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, and they were reuniting for the first time in that movie since Titanic. And last but not least, he did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the 2011 remake I really fucking loved that one, too. It was honestly great. I thought everybody did a fucking stupendous job in that movie. For the score, we have composer Carter Burwell again. He did In Bruges, which I absolutely adore. It's a great movie. It's about these two hitmen that go into hiding in Bruges. I think it's Belgium, and I really fucking love it. It's a really funny concept. He did The Twilight Saga, and I Can't really say many good things about the Twilight Saga. I think the movies are kind of stupid. He did Legend with Tom Hardy, and that movie is not one I've ever seen. My brother-in-law Dan talked about it with me on the Trading Ratings episode on Tom Hardy, and I honestly don't know that I'm ever going to check it out based on what little I have to go on. And last but not least, he did The Banshees of Ennis and I don't really know I didn't really hear anything about this movie but I just started seeing people give rave reviews to it and talk about how great it was and it's reuniting Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleason from being in in Bruges and I really fucking want to see it honestly for the cast we have Tommy Lee Jones who plays Sheriff Ed Tom Bell he was in The Fugitive previously covered on this podcast or soon to be covered on this podcast fuck if I know He did the Men in Black movies, and those were pretty decent. I don't know. I mean, I didn't see the third one, and the second one sucked, so I don't know that I would be that excited to watch any more of them. He was in Double Jeopardy with Ashley Judd, and that one's a solid one. I've talked about it before. It's a great thriller. It's a cool concept for a movie. It's pretty well done. And last but not least, he was in Batman Forever, previously covered on this podcast, or I guess maybe soon to be covered on this podcast. I've already recorded the episode. I just don't know when it's coming out, guys. I'm sorry. My schedule is very fluid with these podcast episodes. I don't ever know when they're going to come out. Javier Bardem plays Anton Chigurh. He was in Skyfall, and that's a James Bond movie with Daniel Craig, and he plays the villain in that movie. And Honestly, I Really like that one, but it's honestly because there's a lot of fan service in it. I don't know that it's actually that good of a movie. He was in Dune, the new one, and they're apparently making a second one. I'm excited for that. I liked the original. I just need to rewatch it because it's been a while since I sat down and watched it. And then Javier Bardem was in this movie called Mother, which I covered on my blog, and I really didn't like Mother. I thought it was a really fucking bad movie. Josh Brolin plays Llewellyn Moss, and he played Thanos in the Marvel movies, and he was honestly great. I mean, he was very convincing as Thanos, very true to the comic books, in my opinion. He was in Inherent Vice, which is a P.T. Anderson movie, and I don't know. I just Some P.T. Anderson movies just don't turn me on, and that's it. I don't know what to say about it. I really wanted to like the movie a lot. It had Joaquin Phoenix and Josh Brolin, for Christ's sake. I really like those two actors, but I don't know what it was about it. I just couldn't get into it. He was in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, which is an inferior sequel to the original Sin City, and I honestly can't condone checking that out. It's not that good. And then last but not least, he was in Milk, and that's the biopic on Harvey Milk, the gay rights activist, I want to say, is what I would call him. I, I I never saw the movie because... I hadn't heard of Harvey Milk when that movie came out and some fucking reviewer spoiled the fucking ending for me because I'm like, I didn't fucking know what happened to that guy. You know what I mean? Like, I I couldn't even have told you. Then we have Woody Harrelson who plays Carson Wells and he was in the TV show Cheers, which ran for like 11 seasons and it's a pretty great show. I haven't watched much of it, but what I've seen has been good. He was in Indecent Proposal with... Demi Moore and I think it's Robert Redford. That one is, it's not a great movie to me. I don't know what's so great about it. I mean, it's basically like Robert Redford wants to pay Woody Harrelson to be able to have like a night with his wife or something. It's just not very good. It was in White Men Can't Jump, which also featured Wesley Snipes. And I really liked that one. I haven't seen it in a good 25 years, but I don't know seems like it was good. And he was in Kingpin, and that's a comedy with Bill Murray, and I never really got the appeal of that movie. It was like a Farrelly Brothers movie. I don't really know what was so great about it. It didn't really seem overly funny to me. And then last but not least, he was in the Zombieland movies, and those are solid. The first one's way better than the second one, as is frequently the case. For casting notes, contrary to their usual process— Directors Joel and Ethan Cohen did not write the script with actors in mind for their characters. Steven Root ended up being the only actor in the cast with whom the Coens had previously worked. Heath Ledger had been in talks to potentially play Llewellyn Moss, but the role ultimately went to Josh Brolin. For a plot synopsis, set in the early 1980s, a man who discovered a large amount of cash left at a shootout where seemingly no one survived, is stalked by a relentless criminal who will stop at nothing to get the money from him. All right, guys, let's just dive right into the plot of this fucking movie. So we start out with Tommy Lee Jones as Sheriff Bell doing voiceover about how lawmen used to be in the old days, like some wouldn't even carry guns. He talks about how bad criminals have been getting by 1980, which is when this film is set, as I mentioned. We see an officer taking an unseen man named Anton Chigurh, played by Javier Bardem, into custody and putting him in the back of his cruiser. The officer gets to the station and has Chigurh in handcuffs sitting behind him as he makes a phone call. Chigurh stands up and quietly walks over and strangles the officer to death. We finally clearly see Shiger's face during the strangulation and he looks legitimately terrifying. This guy kind of looks like the son of Sam killer mugshot mixed with a retired 60s football player. That's the best way I could really describe it, like a, a linebacker or something. Like He looks like one of those scary big old guys in old football footage. He leaves the officer on the floor and goes to clean himself up. And then we get sugar driving a police cruiser where he pulls someone over and walks up carrying what is called a captive bolt pistol and an air tank. A captive bolt pistol is commonly used to stun cows before slaughter without the risk of flying bullets. A nail gun is used for the sound effect of the weapon in this film. I can't stress enough how much more terrifying a captive bolt pistol is to kill people than a regular pistol, It's just so much more up close and personal. Shiger asks the driver he pulled over to step out of the car, and he promptly kills him with a device and takes his car. We see Llewellyn Moss, played by Josh Brolin, hunting on the desert plains, and I want to say this is set in Texas, but I honestly can't remember if they've said it. There's a lot of cool imagery in this movie, a lot of well-set-up scenes. Llewellyn gets a not-so-clean shot of what he was aiming at and has to try and track it, I don't know shit about animals, especially the ones he was hunting. Couldn't really tell you what they're called at all. They weren't deer. They weren't elk. They weren't anything familiar. As he wanders around, he discovers five trucks seemingly deserted nearby, and they're all placed like they were meeting there. He walks over to investigate with his guard up, and there are multiple dead bodies laying around, and there was clearly a shootout that went down there. Inside of one of the trucks, he finds a man clinging to life who sustained a wound in the shootout. Llewellyn doesn't have much to offer the man to help and he's not super sympathetic with him. He's trying to figure out what went on that led up to the shootout. He winds up finding a man dead under a tree some distance from the shootout scene. There by the body, he finds a big bag full of money and takes it with him. He heads to his trailer park home and hides some of the weapons he found under the trailer before going inside. Llewellyn's wife, Carla Jean, asks him about where he got all the stuff, and he doesn't want to say. I mean, he tells her the bag is full of money, but she doesn't really think he's being serious at all. It's a pretty funny interaction between the two of them. He's kind of like getting fed up with her. She keeps asking him stuff. He says, you keep running that mouth of yours. I'm going to take you in back and screw you. Llewellyn wakes up in the night and fills a jug full of water and Carla Jean asks him what he's doing and he says he forgot to do something and it was this stupid thing and just leaves it at that. He goes back to the shootout scene and finds the man he was planning to help, dead. When he gets there, he leaves his truck up on a ledge and he sees two men tampering with it and they flatten his tires. Llewellyn is then pursued by a truck, and a man in the back is shooting at him, and it's pretty fucking intense, honestly. He flees to a nearby river, and the men's dog chases him. The dog almost catches Llewellyn, but he manages to just shoot the dog before the dog gets there, and it's unfortunate. I hate to see dogs die in movies for reasons like this. We then get the best scene of this movie without question. Shiger comes to the counter of this gas station and quite terrifyingly gives the attendant a hard time after the attendant just tries to make casual conversation with him. Specifically, the cashier notes something about where Shiger appears to be from, and Shiger doesn't really like people knowing stuff about him. Shiger asks him a bunch of questions, and the man is so uncomfortable with the interaction that he suggests that he's about to close up. Even though he clearly wasn't planning to do so that early, Shiger calmly asks the cashier, What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Shiger flips a coin and tells the man to call it, and the man says he needs to know what he's calling it for, but Shiger just wants him to call it. Shiger is basically suggesting that the flip is between life or death for this cashier without coming out and saying it. But the terrified attendant wins the coin toss and Shiger tells him to keep the coin because it's now his lucky coin. Shiger leaves and it is just the most fucking tense scene you could possibly ask for. It's so uncomfortable. It's fucking wild. You could have cut that scene from the movie and you would have maybe lost very little in the storytelling, but it's scenes like that that make good movies great. It was mostly just further establishing what a psycho Shiger is, to be clear. Llewellyn is sending Carla Jean off to stay with her mom, anticipating investigation by the police or by criminals wanting the money that he has that belongs to them. Shiger is out with a couple of guys at the shootout site. We find out that there is some kind of tracking device in the bag of money Llewellyn has, but the tracker used to find the transponder is not picking anything up yet, and it has to be fairly close to do so. Shiger kills the two men who came with him very callously, and we finally meet Sheriff Bell on screen almost a half an hour in, which is the Coen's M.O. See the 1996 film Fargo, previously covered on this podcast. Bell and a deputy named Wendell investigate a car that is on fire. Bell figures this car is one of many car swaps a criminal on the run has made. Bell recognizes Llewellyn's truck as he approaches the crime scene with Wendell on horseback. Bell is very reserved and calm while looking around, but he seems very disturbed by what he sees. They take assessment of the scene and develop some theories about what motivated the shooting. Wendell suggests that there may not have been any money involved with all the drugs, but the sheriff doesn't really buy that. Shiger breaks into Llewellyn's mobile home and looks around a bit and finds a phone bill. He creepily drinks a glass jug of milk and just sits on the couch. I've never liked drinking milk straight up. I don't really give a shit what percentage of fat it is. It doesn't matter to me. It's all fucking gross. I only like it with, like, cookies or brownies or in my cereal. But not just to drink straight. I don't like it at all. Then Shiger goes up to the front office of the trailer park and Shiger grills the woman at the front desk about where Llewellyn works, and she refuses to give the information out to him, and Shiger leaves. Llewellyn puts Carla Jean on a bus to her mother's, and he's going to borrow someone's car after what happened to his truck. Carla Jean is understandably worried, especially with Llewellyn not sharing anything about what's going on. Belle and Wendell then arrive at Llewellyn's trailer and see that the deadbolt was blown in, which they don't realize was done by Shiger's captive bolt pistol. They assume it might have been done by a gun, I guess. That would be the assumption. They look around inside and find the blown-out lock and the glass jug of milk still sweating on the coffee table, and they realize they just missed their man. Llewellyn checks into a roadside motel, and he starts going to work on whatever he's planning to do. He opens up an air vent, he cuts the string from the curtains... He hides the bag of money in the duct the vent was covering. Shiger tries calling the different numbers on Llewellyn's phone bill to see if he can get a lead to no avail. I love that we get all points of view in this movie so evenly throughout. The cops, Llewellyn, and Shiger, all necessary to the story. As Llewellyn approaches his motel in a taxi, he gets spooked that someone might be there and asks to be taken elsewhere. Wendell comes to tell Bell they didn't find a bullet in the body where they expected to. Bell says this doesn't make sense, like the guy wouldn't have shot somebody and then gone rooting around in the wound to fish out the bullet. Llewellyn goes and buys a shotgun and saws off the barrel, apparently trying to plan for a potential run-in. He gets a second motel room, and you don't really know why yet, but he specifically wants one close to his current room, but on the other side of the building. Suddenly, Shiger is driving nearby and his tracker starts beeping, and you just know shit's about to go down. The tracker only beeps repeatedly, and it beeps more rapidly as it gets closer to the transponder. Meanwhile, Llewellyn is in the second room as Shiger comes into the first room and looks around. It's very exciting to watch since Shiger is so terrifying and Llewellyn is in over his head in this whole deal, and it's like he really only partially realizes how bad things might get for him. Llewellyn uses a curtain rod and a makeshift hook using a hanger to retrieve the money. Shiger just willfully kills anyone and everyone he feels so inclined to, like he goes to kill this guy in a random hotel room, and he just psychotically aims at him and pulls the curtain closed on the shower, to reduce spatter and it's pretty fucking cool. He opens the vent and can see where someone dragged something the length of the vent and he knows it was the money, clearly. Elsewhere, we see Woody Harrelson as Carson Wells. He meets with a man played by Steven Root who asks him what he knows about Anton Shiger. The man wants to know what Wells thinks of Sugar, and he obviously makes him sound pretty fucking bad. He wants Wells to track Sugar down, but I must have missed what stake this man has in this story. We don't really even learn the guy's name, but I guess it doesn't really matter. We see Llewellyn check into another hotel elsewhere, and I gotta say... I think Brolin's performance is overshadowed by Javier Bardem in this movie. He doesn't really get enough credit, in my opinion. Josh Brolin is spectacular in most things. Llewellyn finds the transponder hidden in the money, and he goes to call the front desk, but there's no answer. He's on edge and gets set up with the sawed-off shotgun on the bed, pointing at the door. You can see someone has come, and you can see the shadow of a man's feet below the door. Chigurh blows the lock, and Llewellyn shoots once and flees. Llewellyn jumps in a random truck and tells the man driving that he's not going to hurt him, but Sugar almost immediately shoots the innocent driver multiple times from a distance. Mind you, we're about an hour in, and Llewellyn is already having a big run-in with Shigur like this, and Shiger has the upper hand the entire time. Llewellyn tries to drive the truck with a dead man in the driver's seat, and there is a hail of gunfire coming at him. Llewellyn gets out and hides behind a parked car on the street, and I can't oversell how much tension there is in the scene. Shiger walks up to where Llewellyn bailed from the truck, and Llewellyn jumps up to take a shot, and Shiger dodges just in time. Llewellyn goes and walks across a bridge to Mexico covered in blood, and three younger guys cross paths with him. He offers one of them $500 for his coat and takes it and keeps sauntering on. Llewellyn seems to take his sweet-ass time crossing the bridge. He has to know that is looking for him, so it seems like a bad thing to do. But I guess this is Mexico, so maybe he thinks he won't be followed there. is cutting up a shirt, presumably to bandage a gunshot wound on his leg. But nope, he's putting the shirt in a gas tank of a truck outside a pharmacy and lighting it on fire. He uses the explosion as a distraction and goes in and steals a bunch of first aid for his gunshot wound. It's a pretty killer shot of him walking inside as the truck blows up in the background and he doesn't even react, which is always such a thing to appear badass in movies. Shigur goes to a hotel and cleans himself up. Wells comes and sees Llewellyn at the hospital in Mexico. They talk about Shiger and what a monster he is. Llewellyn still seems like he doesn't want to accept how fucked up his situation is and that he's not going to make it out alive at the rate he's going. Wells suggests Shiger might go to Odessa to find Carla Jean. Wells says the only way he can protect Llewellyn is if he hands over the money. Bell goes to see Carla Jean and he tries to get through to her how bad the people are Llewellyn's dealing with. He knows Llewellyn is not in a good situation and it seems like Carla Jean probably wasn't completely unaware of that either, based on Llewellyn's recent behavior. Wells is checking out the bridge where Llewellyn was the night before, and thinks he spots where Llewellyn ditched the money. Wells is walking upstairs at a hotel, and Shiger greets him, and obviously Wells knows this doesn't end well for him. They sit down in Wells' room, and Wells calmly pleads with him, says he knows where the money is, Shiger doesn't seem to want what Wells has to offer him. Pretty much, Sugar probably feels like he can still get the money without having to make a deal with Wells in this moment. Woody Harrelson also puts on a great performance in this movie. I really like it. The phone in the room they're in rings a few times, and Shiger shoots Wells dead, and Chigurh picks up the phone, and it's Llewellyn, and they talk about how things are going to turn out with their situation. Basically, Sugar says Llewellyn won't be able to save himself, but he might save Carla Jean if he just gives Sugar the money. Bell talks about how hard it is to believe how many awful criminals he keeps hearing about. It kind of reminds me of how old people whine about how kids these days don't know who Conway Twitty is. And I'm like, yeah, but he's been dead like 30 years at this point, and he really doesn't have a lot of great songs in my personal opinion. Llewellyn tries to get back into the U.S. since he was in the hospital in Mexico. He gets in based on his veteran status from the Vietnam War and calls Carla Jean. He tells her to meet him at a motel in El Paso, and Shiger goes to kill the man who sent Wells, and we really didn't need him to do that, but I guess it's just further demonstrating his relentlessness. Carla Jean's mom is played by Beth Grant, who is the character actor who always plays roles that you love to hate. I like her best in this Mike Judge movie called Extract, where she plays the same kind of bitchy character she always does. The mom's bitching up a storm to Carla Jean. Carla Jean calls Sheriff Bell and tells him where Llewellyn is going, on the condition that Bell goes alone if he goes there. Bell arrives at the motel, and Llewellyn is already there and has been killed by Shiger. It kind of sucks that we don't get to see any of Llewellyn's death play out on screen, considering he was a major character in this movie. Bell sits down with a man who joins in, bitching about how much the world has changed for the worse. If it's not clear, this is the whole thing the title is about, and I just felt compelled to point that out. It's no country for old men, because things are getting too bad, and old men can't take it. Bell seems like he's coming to grips with the kind of monstrous people he encounters in his line of work. Bell goes to the motel crime scene and doesn't realize that Shiger might be inside waiting, and he draws his gun. He walks in and sees nothing, nothing but a vent opened with a dime laying on the floor. The sheriff goes to see a man named Ellis, who is overrun with cats. We find out Bell is likely quitting as sheriff because it's getting to be too much. They talk for a while, and it seems like the man used to be an officer himself before sustaining a gunshot wound that put him in a wheelchair. Bell says he feels outmatched nowadays with the type of crimes that he's seeing. There are some really harrowing tales of awful things that have happened in their line of work that they share here, and it's pretty fucking wild. We then see Carla Jean coming home from her mother's funeral, and Shigeru is at her house. She pleads with him that she doesn't have the money, and she says that he has no cause to hurt her. He says he gave his word to Llewellyn because Llewellyn didn't take the opportunity to save her when he had the chance, so now he's basically just gotta kill her. He flips a coin and asks her to call it. She says she knew he was crazy and won't call it just to give him the satisfaction. He insists that she call it and she says it's his decision and the coin toss has nothing to do with it. As Shiger drives away from presumably having killed Carla Jean, he's t-boned at an intersection. His arm is broken, complete with bones sticking out as he gets out and sits on the curb. Two kids on bikes stop to help, and he pays them off for a shirt and to say that they didn't see him, and he just walks away. Bell is sitting at home, now retired, and he seemingly is having a hard time acclimating to this new life. He talks about some dreams he had about his father. He says he's older now than his father ever lived to be. In one dream, he just met his father in town somewhere, and his father gave him some money. The second one, they were on horseback in the mountains and his dad just rode past him and his dad went on ahead to start a fire or whatever. And Bell just knew whenever he got where he was going, his dad would be there. And then it just ends very abruptly. And I don't really understand the thematic meaning behind these stories. Then we roll credits. So praise for this movie, the deafening silence. It's like so real feeling, honestly, because of that and I'll talk about it a little bit later, but it's very well done with the lack of instrumentation and not having a big score. The performances in this movie are top-notch. Honestly, everybody on screen does an amazing job. I do like the somehow simple story that we have here. It's kind of just very basic, but it's very good, honestly. It's very well done. For criticism, the ending is unsatisfying, and I didn't really know what it meant, and I don't really like that. It's honestly, like, a big gripe of mine for this movie from the first time I saw it, but I've grown to like the rest of the movie more. I just don't get the ending, honestly. So for trivia, the Cohen's writing was mostly faithful to the source material, with a few changes, including the change in focus from Sheriff Bell as a primary viewpoint. The script is noted for its minimal use of dialogue. Composer Carter Burwell's score consists of only 16 minutes of music, and I'm honestly surprised that there was even that much. An unforeseen expense for the film was the makeup department buying expensive fake blood at $800 a gallon. Joel Cohen realized why they were spending so much when it came time to film the scene where Llewellyn, played by Josh Brolin, stumbles across the aftermath of a shootout with lots of extras lying around dead in the dust. Ordinary fake blood made with sugar would have meant the extras would have been crawling with bugs and ants while the insects had no interest in the expensive stuff. According to a January 2018 article in Business Insider, a group of psychiatrists studied 400 movies and identified 126 psychopathic characters They chose Javier Bardem's portrayal of Anton Chigurh as the most clinically accurate portrayal of a psychopath. In the novel, Sheriff Bell says of dope dealers, here a while back in San Antonio, they shot and killed a federal judge. Cormac McCarthy set the story in 1980. In 1979, the federal judge John Howland Wood was shot and killed in San Antonio by Texas freelance contract killer Charles Harrison, father of Woody Harrelson, who played Carson Wells in this movie. When directors Joel and Ethan Coen approached Javier Bardem about playing Shigur, he said, I don't drive, I speak bad English, and I hate violence. The Coens responded, That's why we called you. Bardem said he took the role because his dream was to be in a Cohen Brothers film. The case that held the money in this film was the same case that was also used for the same purpose in Fargo, previously covered on this podcast. Despite receiving top billing, Tommy Lee Jones had the least amount of screen time of the three main characters. As it was a very tight production, the Coens only shot 250,000 feet of film, Most productions shoot between 700,000 and a million feet. In April of 2010, Paramount Pictures was forced to pay Tommy Lee Jones a $15 million bonus when an arbitrator found that the studio's lawyers had made an error drafting Jones' deal to appear in the film. Contrary to most successful films made from books, much of the film's action is taken word for word from Cormac McCarthy's novel and occurs in the same order— for instance, Belle's final speech in the film is on the final page of the book. However, unusually for Joel and Ethan Cohen, usually known for their extremely loquacious characters, I think that's the word, locacious they decreased the amount of dialogue found in the book substantially in some scenes. In the book, Llewellyn and Carla Jean are 36 and 19 respectively, having been married for three years. The same gas station where Javier Bardem's character flips a coin and tells the gas station attendant to call it was also used in the film Red Dawn from 1984. Little IMDB nugget here. Anton Chigurh and Llewellyn Moss are seen dressing injuries a total of five times in the movie. Five is also the number of locks that Chigurh breaks in the movie. Wow. Yep. Okay. That's. I'm sure that they were like very conscious of what they were doing with that. Okay, so on to info and ratings. We have a runtime of 122 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, 25 million. Opening weekend, 1.2 million. Worldwide gross, 171.6 million. IMDb rating, 8.2. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 93%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 86%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. I really like this one. It's just that fucking ending, man. That took it down a whole half a star. Damn. Okay, guys, so I hope you enjoyed the episode today. Obviously, reach out to me if you have any requests or suggestions or anything like that, and I might entertain them. All right, everyone. Well, have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.